This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new Los Angeles. Tonight's program features filmmaker Carl Franklin in conversation with Oscar Garza of the Los Angeles Times Magazine. Carl Franklin, director of such acclaimed films as Devil in a Blue Dress, One False Move, Out of Time, and One True Thing, began his professional career as an actor. At the age of 37, he enrolled in the directing course at the American Film Institute, though Franklin says the best training for a filmmaker is to live a little. Zocalo is proud to present a conversation with Carl Franklin. Thank you all for uh, being here tonight. It's my honor to be here to, uh, with Carl Franklin, who's had a fascinating career in Hollywood. So were you the proverbial actor who always wanted to direct? Is that, is that what happened? No. In fact, uh, it's interesting. In, in 1977, I went to see a psychic who told me that, uh, you know, actors do those kind of things. I was an actor then. And this person told me that I would be directing and producing and all of that, and I was sure that this person was telling me what they thought I wanted to hear because I had no desire to direct at that point. I had written something, and I'd written it so that I could create a role for myself to act in, but I didn't want to direct. And so what happened? Uh, I got kind of hit with a hard reality uh, as Peter Deckham, who used to be part of this big law firm, you know, entertainment law firm called Pollock, Bloom and Deckham, said at that time, that was 77, and if you, you wrote a, f a project and you wanted to try to get it done, if you were black, it was very hard because if it was determined to be a black project, then it would have a limited number of booking dates. And there was also this whole issue of the theaters being in uh, malls, and they always felt that if there was a strong black influx of people coming to see the movies, that there'd be crime and all of that. And so this is no joke. This is what was told me. And uh, I said, well, you know, I feel like quitting. And he said, well, if people like you quit, there will be no one to change it, which was uh, some good advice. And so about 1986, I enrolled at the American Film Institute. I wasn't going to talk about race tonight, but... <laughs> uh, well, it's, maybe we should talk about it a little bit right now, because it, it seems like you can't be a minority working in Hollywood and not have it thrust upon you at some point, whether you want to or not. As you've spoken about in the past, you've managed to not be pigeonholed in Hollywood, and that's not an easy thing to do. How did you avoid... For, maybe you should backtrack a bit, because Carl's made... How many, how many films have you made now? Five movies okay. all together. Yeah. And probably out of those five, looking at it from the way Hollywood films get described, probably only Devil in a Blue Dress would be described as being a black film, although there's a lot of debate about what exactly a black film would be. Because you stop being black when you become a big star, so he wasn't really... He wasn't, that's what they say. <laughs> if, if it's Will Smith, it's not a black movie. Right. If it's, I'm serious. If it's Denzel, Eddie Murphy's not, not a black, black movie. Eddie Murphy's not a black movie. So once you make a certain amount of money, you're no longer black. But Devil in a Blue Dress had a, uh, written by a black writer, right. primarily black cast. But he, black he was a, but he was like a very popular writer, so he's not black. Walter Mosley's not black. <laughs> so, Maybe news to Walter Mosley. But, but that's the only one. That would be characterized as a black film. How have you managed to not get put in a box in Hollywood? It hasn't had a whole lot to do with any of my own efforts in so much as it is I've been lucky. You know, when we did One False Move, it sat on the shelf for a year. It was not going to be released. My wife, who is my producer, she got it booked at film festivals. And what happened was she was able to convince the distributors that they could use the quotes that we got from the strong reviews from those places, John Hartle, Ann Thomas, and Roger Ebert, and put them on their box and sell more units if they released the movie. 
gave it a token release. And so they spent about $40,000 for P&A and put it in three cities, and then it caught on. And that was 1991? 92. 92. What happened was because there was no money for advertising, they didn't know what I was. Uh, the movie was playing, and it had uh, mainly, yeah, really serious. It had, you know, Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, et cetera. And so they, were, they assumed it was a white director. And I got started getting scripts, you know, all kinds of scripts. And I think that they got comfortable with the conversations they had had with me and felt, well, you know, let's try it out. And so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, in fact, I almost screwed up. A lot of people were on my case when I did Devil in a Blue Dress because that was the next movie that I did after that. And they were saying, you know, you, you, you got a chance to do crossover movies. You know, why do you want to do Devil? Because that was my heart. That was my culture. I wanted to do that. But I was advised against it, especially by my black friends mm. saying, you know, you don't want to do that because, uh, you know, it could pigeonhole me. It didn't backfire, though. I mean, you did okay. No. There is a sentiment that it's hard to do what you do in Hollywood, which is to not exclusively make black films. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are doing it now. Antoine Fuqua, Forrest Whitaker, uh, Spike, if he wanted to, and did, mm -hmm. Summer of Sam. Um, so does that reflect... And also 25th Hour. Does that reflect Hollywood changing? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, um, when I was acting in the 70s, First off, there was only one bankable black star, and that was Richard Pryor, even though Poitier, who had been a huge star in the 50s and 60s, was still doing work with Bill Cosby and Harry Belafonte in comedies. He, he could not do what he had done before as a major star. There weren't the stars, and I think the only, there were a couple guys directing, I believe there was Gordon Parks, primarily Gordon Parks Sr., because Junior, the only thing I'm aware that he did was Superfly, and I don't know that he got anything from that. Mm -hmm and Ivan Dixon and uh, Michael Schultz, and they weren't working consistently. So there were no real, we used to always say, and it was the same thing in acting as it was in directing, that we had jobs, not careers. Um, Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor, has a new book out called uh, Life on the Color Line, and it was related to a PBS, there's a, it's a companion book to a PBS series that he just did, and there's a whole chapter on black Hollywood, and uh, he came to Hollywood to talk to folks, and talk to Arnon Milchan, who, who you worked with on your yeah, last, yeah. the last film that you put out, uh, High Crimes, with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman. He said something really interesting, and I want to read it to you because you just worked with him. He said, it could be there is an assumption that Hollywood is closed to the black community, and the assumption could be wrong. Maybe the club door is closed, but not by conspiracy. Maybe it's by disassociation socially. Unless you get into that room, you don't have access. But if we hang out, we talk, and if we talk, we do business. And that was sort of the whole crux of uh, Skip Gates' approach to this chapter, was that at the, at the end of the day, it's about money in Hollywood. It's about, about the green. Is that a premise you agree with? I mean, it is a business. Yeah, it is. And, and, and it's also a business. It's, it's not a social service agency. No, it's not. And, and the other thing, too, is that it is a business that draws its product from ideas, from dreams. And when you dream, I know when I dream, I'm always in my dream. I'm usually the star. <laughs> you know, and it's what's, true. what's an actor always an actor? No, but you know, when you dream of something, it's usually about you, you know. And that's the case generally with people when they write things. You know, they usually want to tell us uh, something that they're interested in, of course, and something that they know something about and that has fired their imagination. And the people who get to share their dreams in public for the most part are not people of color. And I think that has a whole lot to do with why you see mostly white material as opposed to black and Asian and Latino material. 
is because the people who control the industry are not black, Asian, and Latino. You came along at a fortuitous time then, because now there are enough black directors where there isn't a social pressure for all, every black director to only make black films. I mean, that pressure comes from both within and without the community, I think. Right? There still is that pressure, man. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's not as formal. It never was formal. It, it's not as intense as it used to be. But what has happened is that so few movies are done that represent the black community that everybody wants everything out of every movie you make. Mm -hmm. They want it to be a love story. They want it to be action-adventure. They want it to, have, to deliver on all levels, to have a social import, etc. And you just can't satisfy all those people. I mean, you hear a lot of people say, well, God, you know, Monster's Ball, look at that, and you know what Halle Berry did and all of that. That was the only role for a uh, big role for a black woman that mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. That was the best that was out there. And that's the real problem. Arnon Milchon also said that uh, people are too selfish in Hollywood for there to be a conspiracy. So they're, it's probably true. They're too, arrogant for, they're too arrogant for a conspiracy. Well, there's that, and there's also, you know, they can't even form an alliance to try to keep the salaries of the actors down. So, you know, hey, one guy says, I'm not going to pay $30 million for that guy. Next studio will do it. Nevertheless, I mean, what, what is your approach to, to uh, your career in Hollywood in terms of being a black man working in, working in Hollywood? Well, you know, I like to take take for granted who and what I am. I mean, a lot of people will say, you know, I'm a director who happens to be black. Mm -hmm. I didn't happen to be black. My parents were very intent on me being black. Odds were that, sure. odds were that <laughs> they were two odds black were that you were going to be black. together, and, yeah. you know, so, yeah. I, I bring a certain ethnic quality to what I do because that's the world I've lived. Even if I'm doing a project that's not, does not deal with the black culture specifically, my own perspective is going to be an, a unique perspective, partly because of where I grew up and my ethnic experiences. Which was, for those who don't know, you grew up in... Richmond, California. Dodge City, for those of you who don't know. Let's talk about casting, because when you look at your films, you've worked with several very fine A-list actors who obviously are attracted to good material. But what about, how, how do you go about casting films? In terms of what now? In terms of uh, the, the ethnicity well, is it an accident? Is it an accident that... Morgan Freeman was in one of your films, and that uh, Denzel Washington is again in your latest film. Um, is part of your vision saying, you know, I want to, I want to see black characters in my films? No, you know, actually, it's interesting because Denzel was not the person I thought of for this movie. For the last I one, I did not think that he would even do the film. It was not written for a black actor. Mm -hmm. Denzel was when it was presented to me. I thought, you know, that's interesting, but I didn't know if I wanted to go to Denzel with that because I didn't think he'd do it. Primarily, I didn't think he would do it because generally he wants, you know, there to be a character arc and for there to be a lot more of a social import, a lot more of a universal kind of a, a theme or something. And Out of Time was strictly entertainment. For me, it was a challenge because the urgency of it demanded that I shoot differently than I ever had before and depart from shooting from the character's perspective and shoot more from the narrative. And so that was my own personal challenge. But it was something that you know, an actor doesn't necessarily get that excited about because, you know, you don't see where this character grows any or anything mm -hmm. like that. And at the end of the day, you know, what is the real, you know, motive for having made the movie other than just to have some fun? So sometimes people don't allow themselves to do that. And I wasn't sure that Denzel would be interested. But he was. He was. I think it's because they paid him all that money. <laughs> uh, he, he says it's because of me, but I think that, you know... They kicked the brother down, and so, you know, it was like, 
you know, hey. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, I have this theory that more people don't sell out because they don't get the chance. You know, you put it on the table, man, it's rough. You know. I don't want that $20 million. Get it away from me. Hey. Um, you and your wife, Jesse uh, Beaton, Jesse B. Franklin, uh, are a team. She's a producer with a long track record in Hollywood. But ha when you and she get involved in a project, how much say have you had about casting? Um, a lot of say. I, I, the only time I have trouble is in the, you know, the stars. That's when the studio you know, gives me, you know, they want somebody who's going to, because you know, it's really more about plausible deniability. I mean, they don't know what makes a movie successful. They don't know how to make a movie. They don't know what makes it successful. They don't know how to sell one when they make it. They don't know. I mean, they have all the... Or think they do. Or the return rate would be so much better. Yeah. But everybody reads People magazine. And everybody can say, well, this person was on the cover. This person is hot now. This person, whatever. So they bank on the star. And that's so that... Are there people from the studio here? It's too late. That's, that's, too late. that's so that at the end of the day, because they're, they're never, they never approach... And we'll edit this part out on the radio show. So. Hey, they never approach it aggressively thinking it's going to make money. They're always thinking it's not going to make money. How do I cover my rear end once it does not? And so it's very easy to say, well, I gave him Tom Cruise, I gave him Denzel, I gave him whoever, you know, and then that means you did the right and safe thing. And so that's why you find that they get so involved in casting because, you know, it's, they feel that people go to see movies to see stars, and I guess a lot of the public does, and they bank on the stars. It's, uh, sometimes it can be a really detrimental thing because it means oftentimes that the campaign that they mount is limited to just trying to sell the star and not the elements of the movie. Yeah, I feel like I know you because I listened to your director's commentary on a couple of your films, which is an interesting phenomenon now on DVD releases. I've never listened to those things. And you, I've done them. I have. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things you said, in case you forgot, is uh, <laughs> uh, you said you didn't want to see how a movie is made. It, not only your own movies, but other people's movies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's like a magician showing his tricks, you, in a way. You know, I mean, it's kind but of. But is like, it also? Are you? Do you? Are you able to let a movie go? I mean, are you? Would yeah, you, you are. Have to. Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you know, if you watch the film again, I mean, do you watch your films after they're released? I want a few years once it goes by. You know, like I've wanted to watch One True Thing, and I saw it like about a month ago. It's mm -hmm. the first time I've seen it since it's been out because I wanted to see it as an audience, and that was a very painful film for me. Why is that? Uh, well, my mom died of cancer. I mean, that's why I did it. Um, One True Thing was 1998 with Meryl Streep, Bill Hurt, Renee Zellweger uh, in an adaptation of an autobiography by the Washington Post writer Anna Quindlen yeah. about her mother's death and a difficult relationship with her daughter who comes back to care for her. Something you said on one of the director's commentaries, it was at the end of High Crimes where you said that that movie was a real departure for you because it was the first bit of straight entertainment and that you were on, on uncharted ground. Why would making a movie about this waspy white family in New England not have been uncharted ground for you? Because I approached it in the same... It's interesting because, you know, uh, you were asking me about how do I choose projects. There were, there were more black people in Cold Mountain than there were in... Uh, there were. There was one brother. And uh, there was one brother in One True Thing. There were some extras in there, you know... But, but, you know, when I, when I, people have asked me, why do you want to make that movie? And, you know, it, it didn't have anything to do with ethnicity in that case. It had to do with a message that my mom, very much like Meryl Streep in the film, there were things that I knew about her 
and that I appreciated about her when she was alive. And when she was dead, there were things that hit me. And I realized, you know, because when a mom does the job really well, you don't even know it because you think you did it. (laughs) And so I like, you know, just had some things I had to deal with. And um, that was what that was about. You know, that's why I did that film. I read it and I couldn't stop crying. And so it was just an emotional response. It hit so many areas. Uh, and it meant something, you know, for my wife. It meant something for everybody involved. It's interesting because Stacy Schneider uh, was dealing with the same issue. She was she was one of the execs on it at the time. I don't think anybody ever th- thought that it was going to make a whole lot of money. I think people just were all invested because they wanted to make the movie and they felt it would do well enough mm-hmm. to justify it because it was uh, something that we all had an emotional connection to. Um, go back and talk about the most recent film again, which we talked about briefly, uh, out of time with Denzel Washington, Eva Mendez, Sanaa Lathan, uh, Dean Cain. That's why Denzel Washington made this film because he got to kiss both Eva Mendez yeah. and Sanaa Lathan in the same film. Somebody's got to do it, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, yeah. I wanted to put in a mysterious brother who would come in inexplicably in the love scenes and just appear, you know, and you know, engage in the scene and then leave. But I couldn't get a studio to go for it. <laughs> but this is why I think you're a little bit more, there's some subterfuge maybe that you're not owning up to, because in that film there are two interracial couples. But that's South Florida. That's Miami. Right. You know, and that was one of the things that was interesting, because when Denzel took the role, then the casting suddenly opened up. Uh, and the studio because they don't want to make a movie that's just perceived as a black film. And so in order to open it up, you know, they wanted to bring in other ethnicities. And so because of Florida and all the, you know, it's, it's really not an American city anymore, Miami. You know, it's really a Latin American city. It's great. And it's such a melting pot. And, you know, it gave us the opportunity to explore those colors. Mm-hmm. And and any studio never balked at embraced it. Yeah. Oh god. Well, that's, yeah. that's heartening to hear. Yeah. You could make terrible films for the rest of your life, and and people will always be grateful though for introducing Don Cheadle to white audiences. <laughs> and you have a long history with Don Cheadle that we want to hear yeah. about. But uh, if you have not seen Devil in a Blue Dress, Don Cheadle, uh, who was not very well known at all at that time has been, dis- you know, in, in more than one review, is credited for stealing <laughs> stealing the movie from Denzel Washington, which yeah. I'm sure Denzel would have lo- probably loved reading, but uh, <laughs> he just is a remarkable presence in that film. And the other great thing is if you rent the DVD of that film, they have Don Cheadle's audition for that role, which is, which is stunning. Yeah. Um, but now you've known Don Cheadle, you cast him in your AFI student film yeah. in 19, what was that? 88. I thought he was a thug. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I'd, I'd only I'd seen him in Colors, and uh, right. and he small was, role in Colors. He yeah. played Rocket in Colors, you know, and that's the only thing I'd seen him in. And I thought he was a hood, and that was fine for me, you know, for what I wanted him to do in this role. And it was interesting because I, I didn't think of Don for Devil in a Blue Dress because of his age. Denzel is like there's like ten years difference in their ages, and and you know I didn't know that Don and Denzel could look like contemporaries. And I kept thinking of Don as this young gangbanger type that I had, you know, met. And we were at the same ear, nose, and throat doctor. And fortunately, this doctor had all these appointments backed up. And we were there for like an hour and a half in the waiting room. 
And then he called me the next day and said something, and I thought, God, you know, he wants to go in and read for devil. So I thought, I got to bring him in because he's a friend and all of that, you know, and he came in and he knocked it out. But I still had the same problem, which was, you know, his age. And I just wasn't sure that he could look, you know, like a contemporary of Denzel. And Denzel kept assuring me because he'd just gotten back from Italy, you know, mm-hmm. he'd been eating and whatever. And so he's like, look, I'm going to be young, okay? I'm going to be young. And he, I did bite the bullet. He was. Uh, you, you just, again, in one of your director's commentaries, you talked about Don a little bit and said he was, he's one of the most uh, economical actors that you've worked with. Yeah, yeah. Explain, explain that a little bit. He mines something out of every situation, whatever it is. He gets something out of every little opportunity. I don't, I don't care. I don't know how to describe it, but it could be, you know, where he just has, you know, a line, some kind of a, it may even be a laugh line, and he'll, he'll make that something much bigger without stretching it, without trying to pull focus or anything like that. He's just someone who's very attentive and attuned to, to the richness of whatever he's doing at the moment, mm. and he gets deep. Who have you not worked with that you would like to, actors? You know, I don't think in terms of actors. Nah, you know, I really don't. I mean, when I'm writing, when I, I really don't. I don't, uh, I don't go to see movies because of actors. Actors will keep me from seeing a movie. Mm. And who would they be? Uh, ooh. <laughs> but there are actors that I won't go to see because of, you know, their performances or whatever. Even when I'm reading a script, I never see actors. I always see, you know, some imaginary people in my head until the person has a role. And some of that has to do with the fact that when you get really locked up on somebody and you really want this person for the project, you know, you get your heart broken so many times because the deal can't be made, they're not interested, any number of reasons. You can't get the studio to want them or, you know, there's all kinds of things that get in the way of you casting people. Because of your background as an actor, like to think of yourself as an actor's director and, and you know, you know what it's like to be on that, on that side of the camera. You talked also about trying to get actors not to act. Yeah. And how do you go about doing that? There's some exercises that I like to do. One of them is something that I learned from a teacher I had years ago called the first exercise. You know, you just sit down and you take the script. You sit across from each other. And this is a drag, man. This is like a real laborious thing, but it's important to do. You know, you take the script, they take their script, and they've got their role, and you got yours, and you read the line to yourself. And then when you feel comfortable with talking the line, and you understand it, and you just want to talk the line, you don't read it, you talk your line, and then they sit back, and they listen. And only when they've understood it do they look down at the page, when they really have absorbed it, and they lift their line out of that, and then they talk it back. And you don't put anything on it. You don't put any acting in it at all. And oftentimes I find that it just takes forever, but that's usually the level you want to work at. You said that TV and stage actors are are the ones you have to work the most with to get them to not act. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, Stage acting, you're in front of an audience for the entire time and you have to work with your whole body. And so it's not kinetic. It's much more of an expressive, presentational kind of a performance. Television is all geared toward commercials. There's that little zinger at the end, you know, and you just develop all these bad habits you don't even know about doing TV, you know, because it's like jingles, you know, and you notice the lollipops come out. Remember Telly Savalas, wonderful actor, started doing the lollipops and, you know, all of that because you got to find something that works fast and you're shooting in seven days and so you start going with what you know has worked in the past and you don't take chances. Whereas, and, and, and television oftentimes is smaller than life and I don't mean just in terms of the size but in terms of what they will let you do on TV. And so actors oftentimes have to be a little bigger to communicate those moments 
those are habits that you have to, uh, to try to work against. Whereas actors, film acting is not really so much concerned about what you can do in so much as it is what you are. You take someone like a Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, these were guys who were not thought of as being great actors, but there was something about them, something kinetically that made you just stay riveted on these people because whatever their being was, was drawing you in. And that's not something that can be taught. Did you enjoy being an actor? Uh, yeah, and, and it's interesting when I look back, I saw myself in something uh, in 96, and I realized that if I came in and auditioned, I wouldn't hire me. Serious. What? And it Boy, terrified but... me because, you know, I was feeding my family with that stuff, man. I mean, I was out there. What did like, you see that What did you see that you that made you say that? I'm sure, I don't know, some one of those TV things, man, you know. No, but what did you see in yourself that made you say, I, I wasn't good. Oh, you weren't good. I wasn't very good. Oh, that, that would be a problem. No, man, I, I didn't, I wasn't very honest. I didn't believe a word I was saying. I just thought, damn, and you know, I actually, this is what I was putting my family's fortunes in. You did primarily stage, first stage, and then, and then mostly television. Mostly television, yeah. You know, you said that also happened a little accidentally, going to college and getting training as a, as a you were trying to meet girls, weren't you? I was well, that's why I got into drama, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> there's the football players were saying all the pretty girls were in, in theater. Theater. And so I was <laughs> going to, you know, for that reason. And then I... Um, uh, I had a uh, TA who was a graduate student who um, put me in a play, a black TA. She became the head of uh, the dramatic art department, Margaret Wilson, Wilkerson at Berkeley. Yeah. But at that time, she was the only black teacher, the only uh, black person in the uh, master's program at that time, graduate program in, in, in theater. And she wanted to do a Strindberg play with a kind of a southern angle. Miss Julie, and so she put me in that. The head of the department was saying, you know, you're so good, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we want to send you to New York. And I didn't want to go to New York. I was scared of New York. And I was having a ball in Berkeley. And I did not want to leave. I did not want to go. But everybody was telling me it was such a great opportunity, and so I did. Got ended up working at the public. Worked at the public. Then at, uh, at Arena Stage in D.C., then at Lincoln Center. Then I had to come home because there was an emergency thing, family thing. I came home and I was broke, got stranded in San Francisco and couldn't get back to New York. Did a play there, met a woman who quit the show, was living in L.A., and I would go visit her on uh, Sunday night. And we were dark on Mondays, and then I'd come back on Tuesday to do the show. And I was down there one Monday. She got a call to go in for uh, an interview, and she said, can you make it another day because my, my, my dude is in town. And so her agent, being an agent, said, how tall is he? How old is he? What does he look like? She sent me in with her. I got a role in a movie. And so that's why I came, moved to L.A. <laughs> Believe me, forget study and forget. It's luck. I'm telling you, it's luck. Find a girlfriend who's an actress. Right? Hey. <laughs> that one kind of threw me. The most recent of your films that I watched on tape was High Crimes with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman. There was an interesting line that you said about that being sort of an unconventional buddy team. Well, let me step back, because the, the one thing about your films, aside from One True Thing, the, the Meryl Streep film, you do have a, a, an affinity for thrillers. I know you don't like to label them, but noir, thriller type, they all have a little bit of that, don't they? You know, they say that, you know, I, I guess. I didn't think that... Well, what kind of stories do you like? I mean, if, if, if you don't think in those terms, what stories, what kinds of stories attract you? Like, when I did One False Move... I didn't think of it as a thriller. I thought of it as a crime drama. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not think of it as a thriller. Uh, Laurel Avenue was something I did for HBO, which was a family thing. Right. 
devil in a blue dress, I just wanted to go back to the 40s. And I knew that was film noir. Out of time, yeah, it's a thriller. That was the first one that actually felt like a genre thriller to me. Mm -hmm. I guess High Crimes did too. What am I saying, you know? I had actually tried to do other movies. Mm. Um, so you have been pigeonholed, see? You're making well, no, 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 no. What it was was I wanted to do, I had written this project that was set in the music industry called Babylon, which was about the... Uh, gangster rap era mm -hmm. in the mid-90s in the industry and we weren't able to do that and I worked quite a bit on that and I had another project called Killer Spy about Aldrich Ames which we wanted to do the guy who sold out all those CIA assets but I, I, those were things I wanted to do which were not in the thriller genre yeah. and which you know came out of my own creative uh, genesis. Carl Franklin thank you very much. That was filmmaker Carl Franklin in conversation with Oscar Garza. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. The Zocalo Public Lecture Series brings together Angelinos from across racial and partisan lines and is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, Latino Weekly, and the Shepherd Broad Foundation. Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA, is made possible by the American Jewish Committee and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information, please visit our website, zocalola.org.